Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Truth Perspective. My name is Corey Schenk, and joining me in the studio today are Adam Daniels. Hello. And Harrison Cayley. Hello. And today we're going to be discussing the history of Islam. Now, since the early 19th century, Western investigators have been attempting an objective and critical history of Islam and the Quran. Uh, investigators such as Abraham Geiger, Theodore Nodelki, and Heinrich Speyer, among others, investigated the language of the Quran as well as the origins of many of the stories it contains. Two of them made lasting impressions on the field, with Nodelki developing a hypothetical chronological development of the text within the Quran, and Geiger setting out a framework for understanding the sources of Islamic scripture within Judaism itself. However, over the 20th century, such reductionist approaches towards the subject, similar to those methods used to critically analyze Christian origins, were tarnished with the label Orientalist and Colonialist. Edward Said, author of Orientalism, wrote, To say simply that Orientalism was a rationalization of colonial rule is to ignore the extent to which colonial rule was justified in advance by Orientalism, rather than after the fact. These kinds of attitudes obviously hamper progress in the field, even today, when academics have to publish their plain-spoken work on Islam under pseudonyms for fear of slander, death threats, or if you're Robert Spencer, getting kicked off of Patreon or Twitter, and etc. But they continue to publish, so thankfully today we have plenty of material to go through. Now, so in recent years, we've, we've witnessed a pretty huge political fault line emerge across the Western world, and in Europe specifically, Islam is a core component of that divide. So it's safe to say many people are curious and justifiably curious about what exactly is going on within their countries and what kind of a background and history Islam really has. And so on today's show, we decided it was time to take a look at the scholarly material concerning its origins, in much the same way as we at Sot.net have taken a critical look at Christian origins. So we're going to read, we've been reading a number of books, rather, uh, including Peter Townsend's The Mecca Mystery, Probing the Black Hole at the Heart of Islam. Now, Peter Townsend is a pseudonym, as far as I can gather. You can't get much information on his actual uh, background through the web. But the book is easily the most accessible to the layperson, and it's clear by the references that I've checked that he's, provides, uh, that he's done his homework. Um, he seems to use them faithfully, and you can follow through the book and track down every uh, quote or every statistic that he cites, and you can judge for yourself whether he is being uh, faithful to the original work. Um, so that said, it seems to me that uh, it would be good to use the framework that he has set out in order to discuss this field, this subject. And Adam, do you have anything that you want to say about that framework, about how he sets out the book? Um, well, I mean, he, he starts it off with, um, you know, taking it through with a, um, idea of history, uh, kind of critique of, or not a critique, but just kind of laying out what it is that, um, we should be doing as far as like, how do we understand and critically examine, uh, historical texts. And so he, he, you know, at the very beginning, for this is for lay people, um, just gives you a good understanding of like, okay, here's how you go about um, sorting everything out into primary and secondary sources, and then taking that and dividing it up into like, uh, this is archaeological evidence, this is um, uh, an oral 
transmission. This is uh, a primary source with a, you know, this is like if it was a history of the Napoleonic Wars, this is something that Napoleon himself wrote. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought that was really good. And as far as like, you know, giving you like context of like, okay, here's what history is and here's how we critique it and here's how we examine it. And then here's what Islam is. <laughs> right. I think that's the th the one of the main points he stresses, is that if you are going to, if you're just a normal person, a normal person in a Western country, and you're just curious about the history of Islam, uh, you might pick up a, a, a translation of the Quran. But if you're going to do that, you're going to find out relatively quickly that the Quran is a very decontextualized uh, text. It doesn't... It, I think he's. I think it contains three references to um, to Mecca. You know, the most important city in all of Islam. It contains maybe maybe actually it might just be two, one or two, and it contains only three or four references to Muhammad himself, the prophet, the most important um, and critical you know figure in the religion. Like so, his his actual name. Yeah, his yeah. actual name. There's only three or four, uh, references to it, and there are very very few. Uh, references to actual landmarks or anything that you could identify so that if you were going to study the history, if you wanted to know what, what was going on and where it was going on, you can't use the Quran to do that. Mm -hmm. And this has been an issue for uh, for Islam go, you know, for the next hundred years after the Quran actually became a, a concrete text, is that there was so little to, to go by that a lot of people had to create uh, sayings, expressions. They had to come up with a, a biography mm -hmm. of Muhammad and his life. And it wasn't until the ninth century that an actual comprehensive list of a biography of, of his sayings and of everything that it's referred to as, a, I believe it's pronounced the hadith, mm -hmm. is, which is the, the, are the, all the texts that supplement this, uh, this big gap between the religion and the Quran. Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to before we get into some specifics on um, on this study, I want to just provide some context because you mentioned that we've looked at uh, Christianity in this sort of way. So I want to just give a little background on how this is done in those fields too. Because um, just like we are finding now with Islam, it's actually very hard um, within like the Judaic and Christian traditions and even scholarly fields to do a really like objective, dispassionate study of the, the history of, um, you know, what is alleged to have happened in what we call the Bible. And it's not that it doesn't get done, but if we just take a couple examples, like if we look at the history of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, there's actually been uh, like a lot of critical, uh, critical study of the Bible. Mostly, I'd say... Um, most of it ha be, having been done in like the last, let's say, 100 years, but really in the past like 50 years is when it's kind of really taken off. But even then, if you look at the the guys, like the what the so-called Copenhagen School, um, the biblical minimalists like uh, Thomas Thompson and um, um, sort of like Philip Davies and um, there's a bunch of other guys, but um, those are two of them. We've kind of talked about some of their works before. Oh, and of course, um, Russell Gmurkin who we had on the show a couple of years ago to talk about his book on uh, on Plato, the, the, the Old Testament's relation to the writings of Plato. Basically what you find is that you come up against the same kind of issues. Like with the Old Testament, here's this book, 
that is um, widely acknowledged to have been written over a period of hundreds of years. Well, of course, first of all, the book itself alleges to have, you know, the first books are alleged to have been written by um, Moses himself. And very early on in the critical study of the Bible, it, you know, scholars realized that was kind of nonsense because, like, you know, here he is narrating his own death and talking about a bunch of stuff that, you know, he couldn't possibly have known, etc. So it's like, okay, well, maybe that's not true. And slowly, like, the, the date of composition has gotten, like, closer and closer in time to the point where, as Russell Gamerkin points out, that there's no actual attestation of the existence of these texts until like the, the so-called Hellenistic era. So this is when, um, you know, after Alexander. And this is like hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before many people have thought the Bible was written. So if you're going to approach a study like this, like critically using um, like a, a scientific framework and method, then you, you've got to look, okay, well, here's this book. Well, when's, when's the first time we actually have any kind of written record of people acknowledging the existence of this book? And then you have to look at the texts and say, okay, well, wh when's the first manuscript that we have? Because let's say we've got a book that's alleged to have been written 2,000 years ago, but we've only got, like, the, the earliest manuscript we, has is, we have is 300 years old. Well, there, that's 1,700 years where we don't know what happened to this text, right? Well, maybe we can find, you know, uh, another book that was written by a scholar, like, 800 years ago, who is talking about this book. And he says, oh, and here is what I read in this book, and he quotes a sentence from it. And you can look at the, the manuscript from several hundred years later and say, oh, well, there's that sentence too. So at least that's some kind of confirmation that at least 700 years ago, this book existed and had that sentence in it. Now, you can, uh, you can kind of say, okay, well, then it's pretty probable then that you know, a lot of the other sentences that, have, that, that are in this later manuscript were also there when this guy was writing his thing. Can't be certain. Um, you've got to leave the question, the, the possibility open that maybe there are interpolations, that is, text that has been inserted since that time. And as for the, the actual historicity or the, like the validity of the events actually related in this book, that's a whole other story. Because let's say the book that you're, that you're reading is like a, an account of King Arthur. Um, so maybe we've got this book of King Arthur and we've got like uh, a, an attestation of it having existed like 500 years after the events alleged to have occurred in it. And then we've got an actual manuscript from a couple hundred years after that. Well, what does that say about the the existence of King Arthur. Um, like, do we accept that as truth um, just based on, like, the book existing and these things having happened? Well, we have to ask that question. So that's been going on in, um, in like, study of the Old Testament, and, and that work is still considered fringe, right? A lot of it um, gets accepted by the mainstream community, like, academic community, like, years afterwards. So it's more common nowadays for scholars to admit, oh, maybe Moses... And Abraham didn't actually exist as historical characters. You know, they're basically basically mythological, like they're constructs. They're like cultural heroes. And who knows? Maybe there was someone like named David or named Moses that went down in memory. But chances are, like the t the tales actually written about them didn't actually happen. Um, and a lot of this stuff is just like myth making. And that's not to denigrate myth making. Um, you know, myths are a huge part of every culture. Um, and then you move forward to well, so those so scholars can now accept things like that, or at least a larger number than could have previously, where you get to Russell Gamerkin, who kind of like really takes it down and says, oh, well, here, the Bible was written in like 320 BC. And uh, like there's no, no reason to believe there was much of anything before that. Maybe a few texts and, uh, and some traditions that kind of got 
adopted or co-opted into the Bible and and re- reworked and put into the framework of this new de- text. But that's really our starting point for looking at you know the existence of the Bible, and that should be our frame of reference for looking at you know what's in the Bible. And he of course makes his case, and it's a really good one. Same kind of thing with uh, Christianity, where you look at the like the the, his- the historical reality of the figure of like Jesus Christ. It's like um, you look at the documents. Okay, well, when were they written? You know, when were the when were the earliest attestations of these books? And so the conclusion that a lot of scholars are coming to now, for ex- for example, and this is like so this is something that's widely regarded by pretty much every Christian scholar, except maybe a few like really really conservative fundamentalists. Um, like the Gospels themselves probably weren't written by the people whose names are attached to them, and they were written at least forty to a hundred years after the events that are supposed to have occurred in those Gospels, you know, the story of, of, of Jesus. And so then you have to go, okay, well, so what are the conclusions we can draw from that? And when you, look, when you get down to the evidence, you know, there, there's really a small number of people who take a look at this really critically. Because for the most part, the people that study the Bible are believers, and of course, believers are humans just like everyone else. So they have their their biases and their their conclusions that they don't want to come to. Right. So you're not going to get very many Christians, if any, who by critically studying the Bible will be open to coming to the conclusion that Jesus never existed, because that is such a um, a fundamental like core of their being that um, to question that would cause them to. Um, to totally disintegrate, like their entire worldview would disintegrate. Now, that's not to say that that's necessarily a bad thing or that they can't recover from it, because some have, and some do. And um, and even like just as a kind of um, slightly off-topic thing here, there's this thing called Jesus mythicism. So these are the people that believe that Jesus didn't actually exist as a, as a historical personality, but that the original Christians viewed Jesus as this kind of um, celestial deity, so uh, uh, a god that existed in the heavens, but not necessarily as what we would consider like a human being. And one of the and so there's a lot of Christians are very um, wary of that idea, as if to believe that would somehow, um, you know, shake their faith, you know, to the to the core of its foundations. When really, I don't, I don't, I don't really, I can see why they believe that, but it's, I don't think it's a really valid fear in the sense that. Well, if that hypothesis is true, the early Christians believed it. They like the, uh, that was part of their faith. It's like they didn't it didn't destroy their faith because that's actually what they believed. So it's like, well, so if if it's actually true, then it's possible to believe it and still be like religious or Christian. So it's just that um, it goes against the the actual beliefs that have been framed in certain words in certain ways over the generations where it's like, okay, well that, that contradicts like the last 1700 years of, of Christian history and dogma. And that's a bad thing. But really when you think about it, it's like, well, if I, if I allow this to break down my current belief, well, I actually would be, I'd have more in common with the first actual Christians. So, um, just something to consider there, but just, uh, that's all just to say that, um, Christianity and Judaism have been subjected to the same kind of study, and we've been more interested in those that we've devoted more time to that, read more books on it, and uh, but at the same time, it is still a difficult study to to engage in and to 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 have accepted widely within the academic community. 
Well, you, you mentioned the, the biases and the psychological biases, how big of a role they play in, in erecting this wall towards criticism of the, mm-hmm. of, you know, the religion, the text, and everything that's associated with it. And with Islam, uh, there's, another, there's another hurdle that you have to cross, and that is the, the hadith tradition that I was discussing earlier, mm-hmm. because that is a tradition that, um, that claims uh, that since it's an, it was an oral tradition, that it was it was passed down from Muhammad uh, through all of the you know ancestors, everybody who met him and knows him, and you know had an opinion and could share what he said or what he they heard somebody say. Um, that there is this kind of a, uh, uh, a a hint of historical accuracy in there that that really functions, I think, to help people just kind of say, well, you know, maybe maybe there isn't really a lot of you know information in the Quran, but we have this information, and we can't really, you know, we can't prove or disprove, you know, because it's all oral uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. But in like the, the Mecca, like, like the Talmud, yeah, like the Talmud, exactly. So in uh, but you can still investigate that. You mm-hmm. can still go back and, like you were saying, you can look into the historical record and see if anybody else was talking about this Muhammad character, if anybody else was visiting Mecca, if any, if there was, uh, I mean, because Mecca didn't exist in a vacuum. You know, you, know, you have mm-hmm. the Roman Empire, you have the Persian Empire, you have Greeks and everybody who would be trading with them. And as it turns out, uh, what Townsend uh, points out is that in these tri- uh, dry conditions, it's really easy to preserve information mm-hmm. over long periods of time. So we have just copious amounts of detailed records, log lists of, of uh, trade and the trade routes and who traded with whom, who conquered whom. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to go back really quick to what these... Uh, these uh, this oral tradition claims well, it says that um, the ancient city of Mecca was a site of immense spiritual and economic importance, but by the time Muhammad was born in five uh, the mid sixth century, it was adrift in a sea of paganism and barbarity that enveloped the entire Arabian Peninsula. And he was a member of one of the most important tribes and received a call from God to act as the prophet in a cave just outside the city. And upon Acting upon this call, he received a series of revelations uh, up to his death in 632 uh, Common Era, and these then became what we know as the Quran. And then after his death, people burst out of the Arabian Peninsula in the name of Islam and conquered the Persian and much of the Eastern Roman Empire in just a fit of rage and anger and and glory, I guess, for in the name of Allah. Now, just that first point. like as I was saying, there's a lot of evidence there. There's a lot of uh, material data there that would, you know, that if you were to look in it and see, oh, the Roman Empire was trading with Mecca. They were a big trade partner with with Mecca throughout the, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth century. Then you could say, okay, so Mecca exists. Now let's find this guy. You know, is anybody talking about Muhammad? But the problem is, is that there is absolutely no evidence that Mecca was ever trading with anybody. The, the Greeks don't have any evidence of this. Patricia Cohn uh, discusses this fact in her book, uh, Mecca, and I can't remember the exact name of it, but um, uh, Patricia Cohn was the author, but she discusses this in, in great detail. She goes through all the records, and she says there was no no Mecca of great importance in the Hijaz out in the middle of the desert. And I mean, of course, there were there are desert cities that had uh, that were you know booming and bustling uh, through trade routes, but at that time, Mecca 
um, would have just been a, a desert that no country that nobody would go through to trade to. If you look at it on a map, and you imagine going from uh, the Persian, you know, through to the uh, other large cities, large trading partners, it would have been hundreds of miles off the beaten path. Nobody would have had uh, any good reason to trade with it if it existed as you know this large spiritual and economic center. Mm. So that's one of the biggest problems. And th to counter this, a lot of critics will say, well, you know, uh, absence of evidence doesn't prove evidence of absence. But the problem is, is that you, I mean, that does, that's, that's true, you know, just because there's mm -hmm. an evidence of absence doesn't mean it didn't exist. But I think that if you told me there was an elephant in my living room and I went and I looked in my living room and this giant elephant wasn't there, then I would conclude, I could conclude that the absence of evidence <laughs> was pretty good evidence of absence. Maybe there's a, a tiny toy elephant like hidden underneath your couch. Right. That's not really the same thing, See, right? Yeah, it makes sense if, you know, if it's something small that you wouldn't mm -hmm. expect to find, you know, there's a needle in the haystack, oh, I couldn't find ev if mm -hmm. any evidence that exists in that haystack then you could still, you could make that case. But this is supposed to be a huge city, a huge city that Abraham uh, visited mm -hmm. and that um, played a huge economic and spiritual role for, for many Arabs who were allegedly adrift in paganism at the time. But um, that it just doesn't turn out to be the case. So I've got a couple questions. So um, the Quran, you know, um, has Mecca <laughs> as this set place, this, uh, this setting for the events in the Quran. And um, like in the early 600s, basically, right? That's when this story is taking place. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 it, this would imply that uh, Mecca had existed at that point and for some time previously. Mm -hmm. um, so the question I've got is, when is the first external um, reference to Mecca? So the first uh, appearance of Mecca on a map wasn't until the 9th century. And the first reference to Mecca, I'm not sure if this was outside, external to uh, to the you know the 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 Arab caliphates, was in the was in the mid eighth century. Okay, so like two to three hundred years later. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And uh, okay, so so that would seem to suggest. Well, judging this is just off the top of my head, judging from you know, or making analogy an analogy to, um, like the the stuff that I've read about the Old and New Testaments. When you have something similar like that that happens in those books, um, that would lead some scholars to think that, okay, well, looking at this evidence, that might suggest that Mecca you know, came to exist at this certain time. That's when the books were written, and then these events were like retrojected back in time like two or three hundred years to create, like a, to create a history of this newly established city. Um, and you and you find that in things of the Bible, like, and that's why one of the one of the tests for like the the historical reality of of something in a in a document in a text is like anachronism. So if you find an an, uh, an obvious anachronism in a document, then you then you know it wasn't written like at the time it was alleged. It was actually written later because that detail shouldn't have shown up, you know, earlier in that document. And um, <clears throat> so you actually see this. I don't have examples on the top of my head in the in the Hebrew Bible, but you there are examples like that there where they're talking about like political realities, like towns and and cities and like uh, and um, reg like regional powers that only existed in the Hellenistic era, and they're talking about them as if they existed like like hundreds or thousands of years before that time. So that would lead someone like Gamerkin to say, "Oh well, you know, this text is actually being written 
from the perspective, like from an, uh, an author, a writer who lives in this current time, then current time, and who is writing like, um, um, you, you could call it fake history. You know, he's, he's um, mythologizing or like historicizing these, these events and putting them back in, a, you know, in, a, in, an, in antiquity um, when they didn't actually happen back then. Or at the very least, you know, let's just hypothesize that he's going on an oral tradition, so he's got this vague story. Well, he's using details from his present-day situation to construct, you know, the narrative using these oral details. The problem with that is that, as with any, or, like, orally transmitted story, is that you can't verify how old that story is, um, which is also a problem. Um, but um, just on that subject... Um, I really I, I distrust most of the theories of like oral transmission um, unless you're looking at a, at, a, at something that that you know is orally transmitted right if you're looking at um, like tales from like a, a tribal group that uh, that don't have the you know have written language and they tell their traditional stories so you can say okay well these stories you know seem really seem to have been transmitted um, you know orally over generations the one thing you can't say about that is the the actual um, definite like definitive form that they took like 100 or 200 or 300 years ago chances are they will be similar because that there there is like a a very strong continuity in stories like that but when you look at like like new testament studies for instance there was for years there was this idea that um and it's still around that a lot of the things in like the gospels for instance uh they, they say oh well this must have been an oral an orally transmitted story that existed from the earliest days of the christian movement but then like a lot of those have actually been disproved because you find that okay, well the origin for that story is actually you know in the Gospel of Mark, and if you look at the way that that the whoever Mark was who composed this this gospel like created the story, it's actually um, it, it it uses a story from the Old Testament as like the frame for creating this story, and all of the major elements of that story like with these new characters are are called from the Old Testament, so it's like so. It seems more uh, more a question of literary transmission, uh, that is, looking at an existing text and writing a new text with the old text as inspiration. And there's no, there's not, there's not only no evidence for oral transmission. There's no need to bring it in because all of the elements can be accounted for by textual transmission, by uh, like literary mimesis, like I mentioned the other day, like the, uh, last week. So. Um, those are just my thoughts on like this oral transmission. It's like you, you have to be skeptical, skeptical of those claims because they're inherently unprovable. Yeah, not only are they unprovable, but when it comes to such humongous and important uh, things like what the the prophet of your religion thought about, you know, about marriage, about child marriage, about war, about you know all these things that became the uh, laws of the land, it it makes sense. I mean, it, it is. Per, it makes perfect sense that anybody could come up with just about anything they wanted, put it in the mouth of the prophet, mm -hmm. and then you know get their way and get something settled in their favor. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. That's why it, it took you know what, however many uh, you know two and a half centuries before they came up with the quote unquote sound list of things that the prophet said and did is because they it was recognized early on that this was a problem, and it's still I think I mean I think in, especially in the Western from the Western perspective, that just right off the bat, you if you're going to be a serious researcher, you can't take oral transmission as a um, as a really good quality evidence. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can see what they say, and I mean, I think that's that's an important 
thing too, especially when you're studying the you know the psychology of Islam and how they um, portray the prophet and and everything. But just getting back to the um, the Mecca mm-hmm. and you know how important and central Mecca is to this story. Uh, you know, you're supposed to, all of the mosques are supposed to be oriented towards Mecca, towards the great mosque. And one really interesting piece of evidence is the actual orientation of the mosques up to a certain point in time. Now, when you look at them, like the, the mosque built in the early 8th century, the late 7th century, they are basically, most all of the mosques that were built up until the around the ninth century are oriented towards this place far far away from from mecca but they're all oriented towards the same spot so these are the the mosques that were built during this time that we were just talking about when um like before the first mention of mecca yeah mm-hmm. so this is the like the first two to three hundred years of um islamic history where um you know which the which is alleged to have occurred after all the events of the of the Quran, mm-hmm. and okay, I just, yeah, I just wanted to clarify that, that or to show that connection that these are the mosques built in that period of time during which there is no at, uh, there are no attestations for the existence of Mecca. Right, and at this time, there's uh, you know after the the Muhammad is supposed to have died, and then everyone is supposed to have flooded the, the peninsula and everything that's uh we'll save some of you know we want to get a little bit into that later on but um right now just at that time after the caliphate grew you know after there was the umayyad uh caliphate they were still there was still no mention of anything really islamic they still were printing crosses on coins and anything that had Muhammad on it was, seemed like it was more of a title, because I believe that Muhammad means something like the the faithful one or the you know the chosen one, something similar to Christ mm. in, uh, in Arabic. But you know, at that time, they were it was they had a vague monotheism that seemed like it was designed to appease as many people as possible in a kingdom that was probably filled with so many different uh, ideas about Christ, who Christ was. You know, you think about the controversies over whether Christ was a man or whether he was divine or whether he was fully divine and fully man. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of funny, there's one funny tale about one person walking through the, you know, the city and they stop at the market and, the, you know, there's a disagreement about Christ's, you know, identity and then they stop at the, and uh, you know they stop on the street, and somebody else is having an argument over Christ's identity, and it's you know it's just a really controversial, mm-hmm. controversial time. And so one of the ways that these early Arabic rulers dealt with that was by having this very vague monotheism. Mm. But there was also a um, there was a huge element of the population that was a little bit more rebellious and militant. And so when these mosques start to get oriented away from um, this, it was the. It, it looks like it's uh, the city of Petra uh, in um, northwest in the northwestern area. It, that it was an actual an Jordan, ancient, yeah, Jordan, in Jordan, right. yeah, um, from Indiana Jones. From Indiana, <laughs> so it's where it originated. It was Indiana Jones. <laughs> so it, it was during the Civil War that they started to orient differently. And it was then they started as they were getting built. They were oriented towards what we would uh, identify today as Mecca. And it happens over the course of two and a half centuries, where you know it's you can see the progression of this idea occurring that not as um, 
a distinct religious identity that came bursting out to conquer the um, to conquer the land. But as this gradual usurpation, I guess, of of the of an ideology that was gradually developing its texts, developing ideas, and then and then implementing them in a way that was uh, that was distinctly anti-Christian, almost in a sense that you that way you could take this distinct Arabic ide- identity and solidify it. Mm. That just, uh, again, to, to, to make an analogy to the other monotheistic religions, that reminds me of early Christianity, you know, which started as um, a more like universalistic um, religion that, was, that formed within Judaism as a way of, of including both Jews and, and Gentiles, so non-Jews, Kind of a, like let's all get together. Let's let's ignore all these old boundaries and like unify ourselves with this new identity. And then, within a couple hundred years, it was now we've got our identity, and now all you guys aren't Christians, right? And uh, you know, of course, we've seen uh, we've seen how that plays out over the centuries. Yep. Well, um, well I, just uh, I'm curious because I haven't read Mecha Mystery yet. Does he? Show any kind of maps with the layout of these uh, layout of these mosques? Yeah, because um, I, I'm I'm wondering because I'm I'm thinking like okay, so imagine myself like uh, you know 1,200 years ago, like what's the what's the the degree of accuracy to which you could um, you know align a building to you know a place like however many um, you know miles away, and, and it could be really far away, right? Depending on where these mosques are are built. So it's like, how many degrees off were these mosques? Like, what? How? Like, what's the? How many degrees was the change? You know, at this time to 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 go to Mecca, was it like you know like ten degrees, or was it like forty five or ninety degrees? Do you know? Uh, no, I have no. I do not know. Although he makes the he discusses the fact that you know these were people who were nomadic and they were mm-hmm. you know having to travel across the desert yes, using pretty, just the stars. So they had a fairly good yeah. sense of direction. Yeah, but okay. I mean, how how exact it is? Um, no measurements were provided. Yeah, because that would be interesting to see to see a map with like you know each of these like ancient mosques um, you know plotted out and then with you know a line pointing in the in the direction that they face. And then seeing where those points converge, and of course you're going to get some some error, right? Because not every mosque is going to be perfectly situated. And then you know you you compare that with the mosques afterwards, and you and and then uh, you know show where they are um, aligned, to, what they're aligned towards. That would be that would be a good thing to to look at to see you know how how obvious the changes. Oh, and uh, and I found the I found the map. So if you actually look at the map that's in the book, you can see that. Mecca is, you know, it's uh, on the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. Um, I want to say tw- middle, middle on the left side, you know, kind of towards the south side, and then Petra, where okay. these other ones were directed towards, was actually way far north. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that would be well, depending on the, it would depend where the mosque in question is, like yeah. right, that's aligned. Yeah. But that could be as much a, of a, uh, as much as a. Um, let's see, where's Petra here? As much as a maybe like thirty degree, thirty to forty degrees, you know, if if I'm just looking at one point. So yeah, it would be like quite substantial depending on where the mosque is. And of course, if you're if you've got a, a, a mosque right at the coast, like in Aden or something, mm-hmm. then they'd pretty much be aligned at this in the same direction, right? Because there there's a line between Aden, Mecca, and Petra almost. So, uh, but if there's a if there's one in between Mecca right. and Petra, then it's facing the exact opposite direction. Right. 
Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. So in, uh, a couple more interesting facts. Uh, so the first record of Muhammad's death uh, appears more than a century after it, his alleged death in 632. So that put it, puts it in the middle of the 8th century, which is right around the same time that we're discussing here with the reorientation of the mosques and all of these other happenings. And what, where is this reference? Um, like, is it in the hadith, hadiths, or is it uh, like an external source? Do you know? It's in an external source. It's not, yeah, it's not Arabic. Um, but there is a mid-630s Christian reference to a living Arab prophet armed with a sword, um, you know, and people cite this as evidence that Muhammad existed. Um, but the first actual biography of, of his appeared around 750 in Common Era, and the first Arabic reference to Muhammad uh, appears in 691 Common Era, the Dome of the Rock, which, as it turns out, coincides with a period of time, uh, a period of strife, in which one caliphate gives way to another, and this other caliphate decides that they want to cement an Arabic identity against the Christian identity, and so they, they decide to erect the Dome of the Rock, and on it, I believe, are the first actual Quranic uh, sayings, though they're vastly different from the ones that we have today. Um, but on it are you know that that's the first time that you get idea of what the Quran is going to look like is that at this time in a very political a very political move. Well, um, is there anything else we wanted to talk about, uh, like from Townsend's book from Mecca Mystery, or do we want to move on? Like, is there uh, maybe we can come back to his book at another time, or you know, is there anything else that we want to? Um, talk about like you know his thesis and the evidence he presents. Like, do you want to go forward a bit in in time, or is that a good place to to move on from? We could maybe come back to it later on. Maybe okay, something will spark. The, yeah. The well, um, one thing. <coughs> so, oh, maybe I can ask this question. So, does he give any kind of indication of the like what was going on at the time when these texts were actually written? Because and the reason I ask that is that so, so obviously like these stories are presented in a certain way. Certain things happen, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't necessarily happen in, in the hundred, two hundred years, uh, three hundred years before when they're alleged to have happened. Um, but they must have been written for a purpose. You know, they must have presented Muhammad in a certain way. You know, doing certain things for a certain purpose. Um, you know, that's the way all books work, right? When you have a, a narrative, um, you're writing it for a reason. And it's only been really recently that we kind of have written history for the purpose of actually writing history. You know, for for hundreds of or hundreds and thousands of years, it's like it's a lot. It's been a lot more political than that. Um, you know, there have been elements of historiography, like people have um, you know professed their their uh, their desire to write truthful events, but even within those works, you find totally fantastical events that can't possibly be have been historical. So what was going on around the, the time, like even just like globally or regionally, that, uh, that was the, the kind of um, crucible in which these kind of stories took root? Well, I think one of the important, uh, that ties in with the whole idea that the, the Arabs invaded and conquered, you know, Rome and, every, and Persians and everything, um, which as it turns out, you know, it's, it flies in the face of the evidence, which is that Rome was collapsing, and that you know through a series of plague, and and this is increasingly becoming a more mainstream opinion, was that the Arabs were just moving in and and taking over, and so at the time you had this collapse, uh, this power collapse, 
uh, in all across the the region. And as these Arab communities were moving, they were mixing with all of these other Christian groups. And so there was this whole um, uh, this this hugely uh, critical dynamic, I think, into understanding where the Quran and where Islam came from was this uh, this need to create a, a concrete identity for these uh, this ruling these ruling groups in the face of you know this uh, large collapse you know the Persian Empire going down the Roman Empire going down and then moving in and into this this really this chaotic situation and you had like I discussed earlier the the controversies about Christ and Christianity and all all these. Uh, these groups were uh, were largely, you know, Christian and, and Jewish, and the 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 hypothesis that Townsend puts forward is that the a group from I believe from Jordan, the the Nabataeans, and I I could be I could be getting this slightly wrong, but that the Nabataeans um, basically their their ancestors had moved into this area, and they were mixing with all of these Christians, and they had their own distinct religious identity and their own traditions. They were an empire. They were they were very powerful at, at uh, you know the peak of their um, their civilization or their culture, and that in this. Um, in this cauldron, really, they uh, they were mixing with all these distinct Christian ideas, identities, and out of that, they they had they cemented what was uh, what came to be um, a more and more Arabic Islamic identity against like the Syrian, the Syriac language. They started to create an, the Arabic language, and from there on, then um, just for basic basic power moves, essentially. Well, the Islam was created in order to control these these various tribes. You know, tribes that had once been nomadic or you know it, used to being at war. Now they're moving into these areas that have uh, that were colonized and set up and structured by Romans and communities that had been colonized, set up and culturally indoctrinated by Romans, and had to find some way to kick that Roman identity out, kick it out, kick it to the curb because it was so. Uh, prevalent and so powerful. So, what better way to do that than to take that religion, that identity, and say, "No, you are wrong. We're the we have the final uh, big boss man. Mm -hmm. He's the real culmination." And then, um, and then, you know, one of the one of the earliest Quranic uh, publications, the things that was made public, was the idea that Christ was never crucified, and uh, which was flew right in the face of you know the. The whole Christian mythos that he never he never died. You know, I think um, it's uh, something like he, they say that his his uh, some body double was crucified in his place. But when you look into the text and the stories, a lot of it sounds like um, the the myths that were coming from some of these other heretical Christian groups. You know, you get stories about Christ as a child, and you know all the different things that he would do as a child. That come from different. Uh, maybe Harrison, you know a little bit more about the uh, religious kind of the, the smaller cults that these ideas were coming from. Well, um, I think I want to come back to this, you know, at a later date when we come back to this topic because there's this book. Um, I'm thinking of this book in particular. I think it's called Jewish Christianity, and uh, um, and I think the author's name was Sheps, but uh, I can't remember for sure. So I want to I want to take a look at this book and and uh, come back to this at a later date because what he basically hypothesized was that um, well from what we know about early Christianity it looks like there were uh, there was kind of the the more the more Jewish 
um, like uh, the more Jewish group and the more Gentile group. Right, so Paul represented the more Gentile group. He was more open. Well, he was the the apostle to the Gentiles. Right, he was out to convert Greeks and uh, you know everyone else living in the Roman Empire that wasn't uh, already you know um, part of the like the the Jewish community at the time. And but then there were the there was the or there were the Christians that were like led by you know James and Peter, um, who were more. What, what's it seems like they were more. Um, more uh what they what they wanted to do was <clears throat> maybe maybe accept gentiles but it was more limited to to judaism so they would accept converts but it was like you were basically converting to a form of judaism um as opposed to like a, a more inclusive well you know paul would have said the same thing but uh but if, like the so the the actual like cultural markers of judaism like circumcision and and obeying like all of the <clears throat> the torah rules for for uh, for jews and so it looks like after the the Roman Jewish War in like the you know late sixties, early seventies of the first century, that uh, a lot of these uh, like the remnants of this kind of Jewish Christian group, you know, kind of fled into the desert and that kind of continued on with their traditions, and um, and that and he this guy Sheps actually hypothesizes that these were the the kind of groups that uh, that carried on for the you know for the next several hundred years potentially and that were the you know from from within those groups we get the the Islamic tradition coming out of there so uh, you know I can't remember exactly how um, you know the, for this group in particular I don't think there's a lot of you know solid historical evidence for what they actually believed that's why I want to kind of go back and look at this because I'm not really familiar with how their beliefs kind of differed but definitely within like the the known Christian history of like controversies within Christianity there are there are there were the beliefs like you mentioned that uh, um, you know the the controversies between those that believed that Jesus was uh, like really a human that was crucified and those who didn't who believed that he wasn't and those who believed that there was just a like a you know, he uh, like a, a kind of like a ghostly form that came down and appeared to have been crucified, and then some that he actually died in the cross, and some that some that he didn't die on the cross, and you know, etc. And there was just a, like every possible like permutation of those of those factors, you know, was characterized some kind of Christian group, and uh, that yeah, that would be interesting to find out too. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe. Um, Maybe to just move on a little bit, because well, that's one of the things I want to look at. You know, over the coming months is the the kind of environment in which um, Islam, like, you know, got the form that it has that you know that it's been that's that it's been codified as you know that that has come down to us now today, um, you know, in the texts, because um, when you look at um, like the beliefs of of Muslims today, um, of course, just like with Judaism and Christianity. All the Muslims today believe all this stuff actually happened, and so the so whether they did or didn't, they are accepted by a large number of people as you know historical reality, and not just historical reality, but as um, like uh, like moral imperatives, like religious imperatives. Like so, these are the things we must believe and must do in order to you know to be true um, true Muslims, like true true humans, true whatever um, you know, just like any other religion. And so that's an important thing to look at also. It's kind of looking at it from two directions. Like one would be like, what really happened? And one is like, what do people believe today? And um, like knowing what really happened can be 
used to kind of undermine the the beliefs of people today. But at the same time, you have to take into account the beliefs of people today in order to understand what you know what people do and why they do it. Um, and I, like just to to give an example from uh, the Old Testament, it's like if you look at the at Israelis and like some of the common um, like justifications for the, the state of Israel is that um, you know to put it crudely, well, God gave us this land, right? Because the Bible said so. And you know, as much as the um, the minimalists or you know the critical biblical historians can say, oh well, no, that's not actually true. Like, look at this history. Your you know your your history isn't exactly what you think it is. That's never going to sway the the beliefs of the uh, like the of the Jews that believe that. And um, so so you have to take into account like those beliefs, and and then you know you have basically have to kind of like treat them on their own terms. Um, but then, at the at the same time, you don't need to show that the the history wasn't wrong, or that the history didn't happen the way they think it happened, in order to like criticize that belief, right? Because even if you encounter um, a Jew or a Christian who believes that um, you know the the reason that Israel should exist, um, you know, and the justification for any acts that are committed by Israel in the pursuit of maintaining the state of Israel, um, you. You don't have to, you don't have to bring that up, like because the the premise is basically, this is what it says in the Bible. Therefore, I am justified in taking this land and doing what I want with it. But the conclusion doesn't follow from the premise or or the premises. If we you know expand the syllogism, it's like just because it happened in the Bible, let's just say it did. Let's just say the Bible is actually accurate. That still doesn't justify things, right? Um, so basically, there are. There are different um, different ways different ways of looking at the situation and different things to look at, right? So we have to kind of like separate out the the kind of area of of like study that we're looking at, and then like the purpose of that study, right? So like so, why are are we necessarily um, like like looking into the, the history of all, of all these religions? It's like well, that can be like to get to the truth. Another question is. Looking at the 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 beliefs and actions of identifiable groups today, and then saying, okay, well, like, what's our purpose there? It could be to to criticize like the like either the morality or the um, or the like just the validity of of certain like political moves and and certain like maybe cultural practices or whatever, and basically so we can establish like a chain of causation, um, and you know other things too. So there's I'm just yeah, I'm just saying there's different uh, different things to take in mind whenever we're looking at anything like this. Yeah, and I, I agree wholeheartedly because I think like what you're saying, there's kind of a difference between you know ethics and history. You can make a distinction there when you're like analyzing or trying to criticize a you know a religious system. Uh, but then also when you go through history, you can see uh, where the corruption mm-hmm. comes in, mm-hmm. and when and you can see that. Uh, in certain traditions, like and you know, in political phonology, Lobachevsky talks about how you know it. It depends on where corruption comes in, on whether a tradition is salvageable or not. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we, we talked yeah. about that when we covered the chapter on religion and yeah. autocracy. Yeah. yeah, and so when you're going back through history, you know, if you can see where the corruption sets in, then that can tell you what in the in your ideology or your religion or whatever this belief system. Uh, it can, is worth saving and what isn't. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things that, one of the most interesting things I think that comes out of reading uh, the, the Mecca mystery 
is that the the similar the same types of uh, people who are coming up with these grand uh, uh, you know biblical uh, narratives um, were were at, were hard at work in doing the exact same thing in in Islam in the same places in the same cities even um, I believe he just he mentions he discusses Babylon specifically but uh, I just thought that was uh, expand on that I didn't understand uh, what you I don't just actually said. know if I can expand oh. on that. <laughs> I can't even remember. Okay. Well, uh, so I wanted to t- just use that kind of meandering point that I, I made to kind of transition to um, a book that I just started reading uh, by Shiraz Maher. Not sure how to pronounce his last name. It's called Salafi Jihadism, The History of an Idea. Um, and, well, just to... Um, the book itself is is um, like an intellectual history of the so-called Salafi jihadist movement, and I'll I'll get into what that is, like how he defines that. But basically, it's a it's a modern um, form of Islam, and the so that's why I was I was kind of saying about you know we we have these different different things to approach and different ways to approach them. So you can approach like the original texts, and then you can approach the way that they are. Um, the way that they are believed and um, like transmogrified today, and um, so there's another book that I started reading. I haven't gotten very far in it. Um, it's the history of jihad from Muhammad to ISIS by Robert Spencer. And the point he makes really early on in the book, well, written right in the first paragraph, I believe, is that uh, he himself has written a book called like "Did Muhammad Exist" or something like that, like questioning the historical reality of the figure of Muhammad. Um, using some of the some some of the similar methods, I think that Townsend used, um, but he points out that so so I'm going to be talking about all these passages in the Mahad in the Quran. Keep in keep in mind that um, that while I don't while we don't necessarily need to agree about the historical reality, um, we have to you know acknowledge that there are you know millions and billions of people that actually believe that these this is what happened. So that actually forms their their worldview. So keep that in mind. And so that's this this book, uh, Salafi Jihadism, is kind of uh, an analysis of that because um, Maher goes uh, goes on to basically first describe you know what Salafism is because that's a term that you know gets thrown around a lot and you say oh those Salafists um, you know to, to usually in reference to like uh, like jihadist militant groups um, but what Salafi Salafism is is the belief that um, um, in order to practice true Islam. Um, what you need, what the what the the ummah, like the Islamic community, needs to do is to go back to the first three generations of of Islam. Um, so these would be like the you know the, the the prophet's direct descendants, like in those first three generations. So what, like about like ninety to hundred years, and we need. So they they basically say so that we like the the Islamic community, we need to go back to those original practices, um, which kind of like is. Uh, Kind of a, an internal like confirmation of the the belief from a lot of like anti-Islam people who say, oh, you know, they just want to take us back to the Middle Ages. Well, it's like, well, that's actually true. Um, like there there's a, a large group of uh, of Muslims that actually want that, and they think that's the the proper the the proper way, the true Islam is to go back to to the to the the way it was practiced originally. And um, so, but he gives some examples because, like with any religion, you'll find you know variations and like controversies and disputes within and between you know different islamic groups 
So um, Salafism itself, just to you know, give some overview, it's actually um, um, its roots are grounded in Sunni Islam, and the it basically the um, the ideas stretch back. Um, kind of like what does he say? Their roots are grounded in the experience of Sunni Islam over the last century and beyond. Um, and he says, the real purpose of this book is to examine and explain the evolution of Salafi jihadi soteriology. So that's basically their religious, uh, like, savior philosophy. So how do, how do you get saved? Like, what's the, that's kind of like the purpose of religion. Like, how do you, like, achieve whatever it is in that religion that, you know, you're supposed to achieve, which would be like, um, you know, usually, usually it's uh, thought of as, you know, um, where you go when you die, basically. How, how to li- lead a life that you will be rewarded um, by God. And... So just continuing that, uh, that train of thought, he says, this is a broad and varied ecosystem of dense Islamic jurisprudence that has licensed the actions of militant movements across the world. Um, Islamic State is just the latest and most successful group that it, it has spawned. And so, he, so, so he, he's, got this, he's written this book on Salafi jihadism, so he actually distinguishes jihadism. Um, so, so Salafi jihadism is a... Um, is a subset of Salafism, and of course Salafism is a subset of Sunni Islam, and Sunni Islam is a subset of like all you know all Islam. Um, you know the the main divide being Sunni and Shia. So he defines um, Salafi jihadism as um, basically the ones that are in total rejection of the current status quo. Um, the current world order and the and the current um, governments and uh, nation state systems of the the current Islamic world. So basically, he he gives three different um, three different types of uh, of categories, three categories for um, Salafi political preference, and this is how he kind of like places groups. So by it's basically by their method uh, their method for change, and he gives the three possible. Um, uh, three possible methods for change: violence, activism, and quietism. So, the jihadists would be in the in the realm of violence. But he says that the the activists. So these would be people that actively um, like protest against like existing governments, for instance. That um, those can get violent. He gives the the example of Aral. Arar al-Sham in Syria. These are this is one of the the militant groups in Syria that basically they they engage in violence, but their their political like manifesto basically is limited to Syria. Like they just want to, um, like an is well an Islamic state in Syria, and they're they're willing to use violence to get it. Whereas the Islamic uh, uh, the the Salafi jihadists are basically um, they want to tear everything down, and. So really, they are um, revolutionary groups. They um, and they're actually, but but there's a third group. Um, so we've got the violent groups, the activist groups, but there's a, a third group which he calls the quietists. And he gives the example of the Saudi Awakening movement. So these guys, um, they are are actually no, are they are they um, activists? I'll read this. Okay. By contrast, the Saudi Awakening movement. Um, produced a cadre of scholars who operated as activist challengers. Okay, so these, they're actually an activist group. By publicly airing their disagreements with the Saudi government and calling on it to reform. So this would be a reform in the direction of, uh, of a more pure, like, Salafi Islam, which is kind of ironic because, well, maybe not, 
um, like Wahhabism, which is um, the the like kind of state religion in Saudi Arabia, is a type of Salafism. I should have added that earlier. Like when we look at that, uh, Wahhabism is one of the main groups um, within Salafism. And so this Saudi Awakening group, they are more directly engaged with the political process, lobbying and campaigning for organic change in accordance with in accordance with Islamic precepts. Moreover, their belief in maintaining social order and unity leads them to reject radical and revolutionary upheaval. So this is um, totally contrary to the Salafi jihadists, who are radical revolutionaries. And um, the he basically gives the the five traits for uh, what he sees as the, uh, the like the the essential features of Salafist jihadism, because he goes through some of them. Like a lot of people have tried to define it over the years. This is a relatively recent book, like 2016, and <clears throat> I'm pretty sure it's the first book to actually look at the the ideology of Salafi jihadism. Like like he points out, a lot of people are focused on like the military tactics of of groups like this, but he actually looks at all of the all of the writings by the theorists and the, the the ideologues like the people actually writing the justifications and writing the manifestos and writing the like the the long and <clears throat> belabored um you know theological justifications for everything right and you know if you've read any kind of like a, any communist writings you kind of get the the flavor for that kind of thing it's you know it, written by uh, like ideologues it's uh you know kind of well that's the flavor of it but basically so he points out that there are some beliefs that the Salafi jihadists have that naturally are the same beliefs that you know most other Muslims have or most other Sunnis have. But the five that like distinguish Salafi jihadism is their focus on and the particular um, ways in which they characterize these five things, which are... Um, um, he goes through um, each of these five in the book, Tawheed, Hakamiya, Alwala, Walbara, Jihad, and Takfir. Um, and so Tawheed is basically. Well, I'll, I'll go to the the, uh, the glossary so I can read you know his definition. So Tawheed is the unitary oneness of God, the core component of Islam, and the single most important factor for Salafism. So basically, they use that as a as a political kind of like rallying call that um, the purpose of life and religion and Islam is to to is the unitary oneness of God to accept that and to put it into practice. So basically, that is the justification for you know taking over land and and uh, getting other people to convert. It's because that's the the religious imperative is like you do that for God because that's the way the universe should be structured. You know, if we if humans are living right with the universe, they will be um, they will be Muslims essentially. Uh, and of course, you can see that in you know a lot of different religions. And of course, jihad—they've got specific like justifications for war and um, and methods for war, what is and what isn't allowed. And then um, takfir is basically the excommunication of of other Muslims, so banishing them from the faith. So it's their methods and their justifications for who and who isn't a Muslim. And um, the other two, I haven't um, gotten into yet, so I I wouldn't be able to. Uh, to summarize them at all, but basically, they they're for the for two purposes: the protection of the faith and the promotion of the faith. So the protection comes through um, alwala, walbara, and takfir. So basically, you know, defining the boundaries, and then it's pro, it's promotion. Um, well, and also jihad. 
And then its promotion is linked to Tawhid and Hakamiya. So he goes, the, the book is structured on each of those five things and showing how, you know, how they, how these guys actually talk about those five things, how they relate them to, um, you know, the hadiths and the Quran and there and thereby justify all of their actions. Well, I just wanted to just interject for a second because one of the the top themes in the hadiths is the portrayal of Muhammad as a intense uh, warrior. Mm-hmm. And I mean the the amount of toxic masculinity, if you want to call it that, that's in the hadiths is uh, it would blow your mind. <laughs> you know, he uh, basically he engaged in war with every single neighboring tribe and city that he came into contact with. Mm-hmm. Um, here's I've got a list of the of things that he you know that he did in these in in this long oral tradition. Um, that he uh, he ordered raids on caravans in order to steal their contents and to then sell people for ransom. He allowed his followers to rape captive women. Um, he consistently taught that warfare for the sake of Allah is the highest duty that a Muslim can perform. Mm-hmm. He taught that those who abandon Islam should be executed. He ordered the assassination of several people who were critical of him. He was president and did nothing to stop an act of genocide when his followers slaughtered disarmed male members of a Jewish tribe after that tribe refused to embrace Islam. And he married and uh, consummated that union with a woman on the same day that her husband, father, brother, and most of her family were slaughtered by his followers. So this is the the portrayal of the, the highest form of character that you could aspire to if you grew up in this religion. All those traits, um, you know, it's obviously, it's really intense, hits you right in the face when you just read them one by one. I didn't grow up in that tradition. I Mm -hmm. never, you know, I'm not sure how popular those kinds of stories are. But as a male, you know, this is the top alpha dog that you would look up to in terms of, you know, forming your traits. So it makes sense, I think, that this would be one of the, um, that these characteristics, these traits would be so visible. Yeah. Well, and one of the points he makes is that, um, you know, oftentimes when groups like ISIS are portrayed in the media, they're portrayed as just, you know, just a bunch of like bloodthirsty psychopaths or murderers, right? Um, like, you know, mindless criminals. But actually, you know, as he points out that like everything that they do is actually like justified and reasoned reasoned through based on uh, a text. Like they, they have examples for everything. So it's like the, it's, well, that's not to say there isn't hypocrisy even within, even among like ISIS members, but the like all their all their main tactics and um, and strategies and like uh, well, pretty much everything they do does have a justification, like a a really well thought through and rational justification. Of course, if the premises are wrong, you're going to get lead to some like like immoral conclusions and and practices. But there is that uh, there is that procedure of like islamic jurisprudence and just giving the example of jihad like there is a um like a long history of um you know theorizing on jihad and of course like that does mean warfare and the vast majority of muslims agree that it means warfare like the idea that there's this greater jihad which is the struggle within oneself that actually is a a valid um idea but it's actually a late idea and so a lot of uh, a lot of Muslims actually re- reject that idea and say, okay, well, you know, you can think that, but you know, jihad actually is warfare. And so there are there are justifications for offensive and defensive warfare, like naturally, just like in any society. Um, but like especially with these with the Salafis, it's uh, and the militant Salafis, um, 
warfare gets elevated to like um, to a uh, like a moral imperative. So um, I'll just read a paragraph from uh, from Shiraz Maher's book. He basically he writes. Um, at its core, the contemporary Salafi jihadi movement regards physical struggle in the cause of God as the pinnacle of Islam, its zenith and apex. It is the vehicle by which the religion is both defended and raised. This chapter explores the importance attached by Salafi jihadist theorists to the idea particularly with regards to the virtues of combat and its link to the concept of worship itself. Viewed in this way, jihad is the path of God, or jihad, jihad in the path of God is ibadah, an act of worship akin to ritualistic acts such as prayer, pilgrimage, or fasting. This chapter also explores mainstream Salafi jihadi positions on defensive jihad um, before explaining how the global jihad movement appropriated these opinions to license its war against the West as a legitimate and necessary defensive measure. So he actually goes through all of the um, the kind of mental gymnastics in order to get to the point where, um, like Salafi jihadists today, can justify just killing anyone. And ironically, but not unsurprisingly, that's led to fractures within the Salafist community itself. So he gives examples of some of like the early um, Salafist jihadist uh, theorists. So these were the guys writing the tracts, writing the the monographs, you know, the treatises who um, give this you know, very studied defense of offensive jihad, who have turned on the movement because of what they see, like the, the, like what they see in the actual practice of these Salafi jihadists. They're saying, well, you guys can't do that. Because there's this whole idea of um, like the killing of women, children, and basically innocent civilians. So um, it's, gotten to, it's gotten to the point through, these, through this th- theorizing that that is allowed for these groups. And they um, use as justification the like the Islamic principle of like retaliation, uh, the law, the law of equal retaliate, re, the law of equal retaliation. This is called the kisas, and um, so it's based on you know certain texts from the the Quran um, justifying these things. But um, but then these guys come along and say, well, actually, no, you guys are really expanding the 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 definitions here. Because yeah, there are these these verses that say, for instance, um, um, you know, whatever is kind of like whatever wrong is done to you, you you meet that out to to the person that wronged you, something like that. I'm paraphrasing, kind of like an eye for an eye, the the same uh, the same principle. But the like the very next verse says, oh, but you should be you should be moderate because you know Allah judges harshly. But they leave out the second part and just focus on the first part. And so I think it's kind of ironic because you'll get a lot of um, like Westerners who are, you know, critical of the anti-Islam stance who will say, oh, well, these, you know, you, you, they're just, or, or you're just misinterpreting the Quran because the Quran actually says this. It's like, well, yeah, and that's what Muslims will say too. And some, even some Salafist groups, but you do have the groups that don't care. It's like they, they will theorize, you know, well, basically they'll theorize whatever they want to and they'll justify it however they want to. And that's essentially what, uh, what has gone on. Um, with, uh, just with, you know, this example of jihad. But um, one, maybe I want to move on with, just with that in mind, I want to read a couple paragraphs uh, from um, Ponderology because I think there's some 
relevant things here. So first I'm going to read a uh, paragraph from the section on spellbinders. Lobachevsky writes, In a healthy society, the activities of spellbinders meet with criticism, effective enough to stifle them quickly. However, when they are preceded by conditions operating destructively upon common sense and social order, such as social injustice, cultural, cultural backwardness, or intellectually limited rulers sometimes manifesting pathological traits, spellbinders' activities have led entire societies into large-scale tragedy. Now, the next session section, this is on um, ponderogenic unions, so like gangs or kind of uh, psychopathic revolutionary groups. He writes, um, The earlier phase of a ponderogenic union's activity is usually dominated by characteropathic, particularly paranoid individuals, so you know, people with personality disorders, um, who play an inspirational or spellbinding role in the ponderization process. Recall here the power of the paranoid characteropath lies in the fact that they easily enslave less critical minds, for example, people, for example, people with other kinds of psychological deficiencies or who have been victims of individuals with character disorders, and in particular, a large segment of young people. At this point in time, the union still exhibits certain romantic features and is not yet characterized by excessively brutal behavior. Soon, however, the more normal members are pushed into fringe functions and are excluded from organizational secrets. Some of them thereupon leave such a union. And then, one last little bit on ideology. The ideology of unions affected by such degeneration has certain constant factors regardless of their quality, quantity, or scope of action. Namely, the motivations of a wronged group, radical writing of the wrong, and the higher values of the individuals who have joined the organization. These motivations facilitate sublimation of the feeling of being wronged and different, caused by one's own psychological failings, and appear to liberate the individual from the need to abide by uncomfortable moral principles. In the world full of real injustice and human humiliation, making it conducive to the formation of an ideology containing the above elements, a union of its converts may easily succumb to degradation. <clears throat> when this happens, those people with a tendency to accept the better version of the ideology will tend to justify such ideological duality. The ideology of the proletariat, communism, which aimed at revolutionary restructuring of the world, was already contaminated by a schizoid deficit in the understanding of and trust for human nature. Small wonder, then, that it easily succumbed to a process of typical degeneration in order to nourish and disguise a macrosocial phenomenon whose basic, whose basic essence is completely different. <clears throat> so basically, in these three little excerpts, I think we've got a, you know, a perfect description of like the Salafi jihadist movement. So we have the, the spellbinders who are, well, first, before any of that, like, um, what's the environment in which um, these jihadist and Salafist movements have arisen? Well, I can't speak for, like, uh, you know, 150, 200 years ago, um, but in the, in the last 100 years, of course, there have been, um, you know, great geopolitical changes and, you know, foreign meddling, and in the last 20 years, you know, um, warfare. And 
very rightly, you know, the 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 Muslim community and even just the not just the Muslim community, but the the multi-confessional community in nations like Iraq and you know Afghanistan and Syria and Libya um, have been have been under attack in various ways, including you know actual warfare and uh, you know bombs and millions of deaths. So this is like what uh, what Lobachevsky says it's that the, the these ideologies arise in times of real um, um, real grievances, like real bad things that happen. And um, let me just where's that uh, that bit that he just that I just quoted. Um, real injustice and human humiliation. And um, that these ideologies arise, uh, and what are their their goals? Well, their goals are always the same, and their goals always make sense. It is they're motivated; they're the motivation of a wronged group. And what is their goal? Um, to radically make right the wrong that was done to them, and um, and then to elevate the individuals who joined the organization, at, you know, to um, to the level of you know these are the high, highest valued individuals. And um, so essentially what, what you have is it's really a, like a tragic scenario, right? Because, and this happens all the time. Basically, when you have a group that does suffer a wrong, well, what are you naturally going to get? You're going to get, well, primarily a lot of young men who see what's being done to them. And, you know, being young men, like all young men across the world, they're going, you know, well, people are... Um, self-centered, right? They're more willing to see the, the fault in uh, an external, you know, another person than they are within themselves. So naturally, um, that will combine with the actual wrong done to them to totally, um, you know, demonize the enemy. And of course, it is an enemy. So you will get uh, a movement that will form, and it could be like a, a national like resistance movement, like, uh, you know, like sprung up in Iraq. And um, who are you know basically fighting for their freedom, but there's this ideology, right? So you, but you, so you have these these real reasons for for fighting, these real reasons for joining a militia, right? To protect your family, to protect your village, your town, your city, your country. But the that this is how um, this is how revolutionary ideologies take hold, um, and it's the same thing in Ukraine. Um, like like I said last week, I'm reading this book, uh, Ukraine Over the Edge, by Gordon Hahn, and he talks about the rise of the right, right sector and all the different, um, all the different, um, like kind of neo-fascist groups that went into the creation of of right sector. And right sector was actually created like on the Maidan, like that's when it it started. And then he goes into like all of the all of their actual writings and what they actually believe. And um, and if you look, well, yeah, of course, you know, like Western Ukrainians haven't had it easy like for for a long time and currently today it's like even in ukraine it's like western ukrainians are the the poorest like they, they suffer from the most poverty and you know they've been you know um gone back and forth between between nations like borders have changed around them and they d don't really have never really had a lot of like political representation and um so naturally you know just imagine yourself imagine a young man in that in that situation well it's it's no it's no um, surprise you know that he might join a group like uh, you know like the right sector, but the you know the problem is is that these are the types of groups that that uh, ponderogenesis happens in, like these are the types of groups that po get ponderized, and that's why I say it's a tragedy. It's that uh, like you, you look at the the people 
um, you know, in in Tsarist Russia. You look at the, the the revolution that went on. It's like not everyone engaging in the revolution wanted the, you know, wanted what would happen. Uh, basically, not everyone wanted what they ended ended up getting. Um, it's not like they would have predicted and say, oh, you know, we want a revolution and we want Stalin and we want him to do this. It's like, no, that happened, but that's not what they wanted for it. That's not what they wanted. The like the revolution took its course. And the the tragic thing is, is that revolutions take their course and they tend to take them in the same direction. Like uh, violent revolutions that make things worse are far more common than um, you know, nonviolent rev- revolutions that actually get the changes that the revolutionaries want. Right, and one of the big problems, uh, like as Lobachevsky points out, is this uh, the schizoidal ideology that mm-hmm. functions as the basically the um, the system of coordinates for the, for all of these people and how they act. Uh, Albert Einstein said that uh, he described the movement of the movement of heavenly bodies as contingent on a system of coordinates that empirical data were of use only insofar as they could be related to a field of perception already plotted. So you, when you have these conditions uh, set up, and then you throw a, this kind of a, this schizoidal um, ideology into the mix, you know, th- this, this is the system that you have to, to go by. You know, the, and I think that's what really lends the, the shield for these kind of characteropathic individuals who are doing things that are so unnatural that if you had a completely, you know, a more realistic system of coordinates that you would be able to see this, no, this isn't what, you know, we should do. This mm-hmm. isn't, this doesn't make sense. This isn't, we should think this through. This should be more logical or this or that. We can't just assume we know that, you know, proletariat of the masses is going to solve all the world's problems. Um, you know, that when you have a, when you have that deranged system in place, then it, I think that's one, a really critical factor in why things get so bad. But as you point out, you know, it, things just, revolutions run their course. Mm-hmm. Revolutionaries, you know, run their course, really. Yeah, and it, and it really, like the Salafi Jihadist movement, it really got to the point, like Lobachevsky mentioned, where like the old members are no longer welcome. Like even the Salafists who, from an extra, like from a, a person outside the, the, you know, the belief system, would look at them and say, well, you know, they're pretty radical. Um, but even they are leaving, uh, or, you know, at least some of them have left or been like excommunicated from the from the movement because they aren't radical enough and that's just that like you said uh that's just the natural progression of things but one one of the really kind of like ironic things that uh that uh that i found in this book just just in the first like 40 or 50 pages is that he points out that the the actual salafist jihadist movement didn't really exist until um like the <clears throat> the second Iraq War, like two thousand three to the, to the present, um, that before that, you know, there were Salafist groups, but um, they didn't really have a core ideology. You know, there were you know a bunch of conflicting opinions, and it was really only in the Algerian War in like the the early nineties that these ideas kind of started taking root. So it's taken like almost thirty years, but but nowadays there is this uh, there is this identifiable ideology and it has it has been born in like actual warfare um you know out of um you know partially out of just the necessity of warfare and then the 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 practical um the practical working out of beliefs and and actions that that have already like been uh been manifested in warfare to the point where now now there is uh now there is a movement so the the irony is that like in the 90s you know there were 
um, a small minority of like concerned individuals who actually saw you know what the what these people were writing and were uh, genuinely and rightfully concerned about it. Um, like I mentioned, Gordon Hahn, the, who who wrote this book on Ukraine, he was actually one of the guys in like the late '90s who was one of the only Westerners who was looking at what was going on in Chechnya and saying this is a this is a bad situation. Um, like Russia is is facing an Islamic threat um, within the country because from the Western perspective, like the Western mainstream perspective, um, they were just you know Russia was just facing um, you know uh, basically a, an Islamic um, you know, separatist movement. And, you know, Islam didn't really have anything to do with it. It was just like Chechnya and Dagestan, you know, they were the, the oppressed minorities in these regions and they wanted, they wanted, uh, out of, you know, uh, they wanted their, their independence from Russia. And of course, long history again of historical grievances, um, real wrongs done, um, through the course of, you know, the interaction with the Russian empire and the Soviet union. And even in those first years, it would have been, uh, like th those groups might have been considered, um, if not uh, Salafists, then you know very similar to like the the activist movement that um, that uh, that uh, Maher like includes in his categories. You know they weren't they weren't bent on global jihad. They just wanted independence, and they were they fought a war for independence. And there wasn't actually any kind of um, um, like infection by um, the like jihadist movement in in those early years it was only in the later years that's that's that um like you know ex al-qaeda or you know people who fought in afghanistan and bosnia started going into chechnya and um you know gaining converts and really kind of uh jihad jihadizing the the movement there to the point where um um, and so this is what Gordon Hahn was warning about. He's like, well, no, this, this is actually really bad. And of course, no one was listening to him. And um, it, so it got to the point where the, these groups kind of eventually amalgamated and solidified into the Caucasus Emirate, who then pledged allegiance to ISIS. And now they, they're basically, you know, most of them are in Syria fighting or dead. Um, but there is still this, um, you know, there's still some of them in, in Chechnya and Dagestan. So you'll, you can watch like, you know, videos of the FSB, like rooting them out of, um, you know, their holes in the forests where they hang out and then, and terrorize the villages, you know, during the, during the night. Um, so it is like, it is a problem still. And that's why, that's why, that's one of the main reasons that Russia went to Syria in the first place is that the huge number of, well, relatively huge number of Russian citizens and, you know, Central Asians who went to Russia and would have come back. Now, the, uh, the, the Salafist, like a uh, mercenary jihadi type individual. Now, is this ideology that they have, is it, uh, you said that it took uh, many years for it to develop its own distinct identity. Mm -hmm. How recognizably Islamic is it? I mean, is it, do, do these people, I mean, are you supposed to read the Quran mm -hmm. before you go murder everyone? And I mean, because you hear stories coming out of the Middle East, especially in Syria, the cities being liberated. And you get the idea of like what you were discussing earlier about you know this um, ideology wanting to turn back time to you know basically the middle or medieval medieval age type mm -hmm. living conditions you know in terms of women have to wear their you know, the burqa and you, you get your hand cut off if you steal that those those kinds of uh, punishments and is that basically sum up I mean is this a Sharia law? Um, 
But I, I'm not exactly sure why I'm trying to say that. <laughs> well, well, basically, like, is it a religious movement? Like, is it fundamentally a religious movement? Yeah. Well, that's you know, that really depends on what angle you're looking at it, right? <laughs> if you ask these guys, they'll say yeah. Um, and if but the, like the but there's but there's all kinds of things to consider. Like when you look at a lot of the like the new converts to to like ISIS, a lot of them are newly converted to Islam, right? So. Um, and they're young, right? So these are the kind of like the the susceptible individuals that Lobachevsky talks about, right? Especially if you're a young guy. And one of the points that uh, um, that Maher makes is that the well, let me see if I can find it. Um, he he talks about the the actual ideology, and um, let me see. No, that's not what I want. So, a brief note on ideology is also needed, given that it informs the cornerstone of what is being examined here. In its most basic construction, ideology is distinct from the political way of thinking by attempting to bring together a series of speculative abstractions into a coherent doctrine in the pursuit of utopia, or at, at the very least, a better way of living. Um, and... He says elsewhere, let me see if, okay, yeah. Um, to this end, it exhibits, uh, Salafi jihadism, is, jihadism exhibits a tendency towards brutal nihilism with its desire to forcibly replace everything other than itself. Its adherents also recoil at the permissive egalitarianism of contemporary societies, seeking a return to the more assured, albeit absolutist, times. Um, satiating ideologies consequently provide their adherents with a form of common cause, a unifying mission, and a sense of purpose for, for bringing society together. And that's basically what it comes down to, is that there is this like um, very definite like ideology, and, uh, and it provides a sense of purpose for you know, these primarily young males. Just like, you know, so on the one hand, you get a guy like Jordan Peterson who provides, you know, meaning and purpose to people's lives. And on the other hand, you can have groups like ISIS who do the same thing, but it's a different type of purpose and a different type of meaning. But it's the same, it's the same principle operating there. So um, what, the, what I was going to say about the, like these new, new converts to Islam who go over to join ISIS, it's like, well, from from the kind of insider reports and the documents that have been released from liberated areas and like firsthand accounts, well, what happens is when they, when they go to join, join up, you know, this is, you know, they, they fill out a questionnaire and a lot of them, you know, says, so they, they ask the question, oh, well, um, what's your proficiency and knowledge about, you know, Islam? And a lot of them will say, oh, you know, not very much at all. So this can be seen as evidence, oh, that these aren't real Muslims, but really it's like, well, you know, what do I know? Um, I'm not. A, I'm not an expert. When they join, they actually are indoctrinated, right? There are there are rules. There are um, there are imams, you know, that are that are you know leading prayer, and there there is a, a religious like ritualistic aspect to everything that that, that they do. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, like keeping in mind like what Lobachevsky writes about these ideologies, like in a sense, that is the um, the original like surface ideology. As, as pathological as it is, that's still just the surface ideology. Behind that is the actual um, like psychological pathologi 
uh, pathology, psychopathology that's underneath the surface to the point where um, you can get hypocrisy even within that pathological system where, um, you know, they will do things that will, you know, some of these guys might actually violate their own precepts, but, you know, that doesn't, that, that's just a... Right, that's just the rule for centuries, right? right. Is that the, the elite? There's a certain uh, set of standards for them, but they hold the stand. They set right. the standards for everyone else, especially in Saudi Arabia. I mean, those mm-hmm. the, uh, you know the elite in Saudi Arabia. You hear about them flying and doing all sorts of crazy things, you know, in their you know palaces and their billion dollar palaces, mm-hmm. while. The uh, the man on the street, if he's singing, you know, he's going to get flogged, or you know, a woman cheats, she gets her head cut off. But I'm sure there's no there's no such thing going on for uh, for them. Right, but and like uh, I didn't read it, but in in one of those sections where that I quoted from Ponderology, Lobachevsky writes that basically the the original ideology is used as a um, um, as like the bar or the like the measure by which like younger more naive members are are held to account right so even though it's kind of just it's just a mask um it's still used as um as kind of the um how to put it like the rules for membership essentially the rules for initiation the game that we're going to play right mm-hmm. so we so all need a game that we know how to play and mm-hmm. this is going to be the game so, so and if, part of the game is knowing that the the elite don't play the game. Right. You just know that's that's what's going on. But who are you to say anything? Right. So that that's why I said it's it depends on what angle you're looking at it from. Because for the for the fighters themselves, it is very religious. Like this is their purpose in life. And like um, like Maher shows in the beginning of the book, and he he makes reference to a book I read a couple of years ago um, called The ISIS Apocalypse by William McCants that uh, they really are an apocalyptic movement. And um, so, so this guy like, points out the kind of paradox in their beliefs, because on the one hand, they, are, they have this constructive ideology about state building, or they did, you know, before they got slaughtered. Um, but on the other hand, they're totally destructive because they're actually planning for the end of the world. And so, um, um, like, you can see this in a lot of the, the suicide bombers in Syria, and you know if you've ever if you've ever watched like some of the propaganda videos from ISIS, um, you know you you, sh- you, sh- you see these guys, um, they show them, and they're um, you know they go to their deaths willingly, um, you know believing that they're fighting for a good cause and that uh, that they will be rewarded for for um, you know engaging in warfare. Um, like I, that was kind of implied in some of the quotes I read. I didn't read the ones that explicitly say it, but basically, you know, when he's saying that. That jihad is a, um, you know, essentially a religious ritual and the apex of Islam for these guys, like that. That's true. So, the that's actually um, what can uh, it's that that level of like indoctrination and like um, self purpose, you know, that kind of pathological purpose that will allow someone to just, um, you know, go into battle knowing that they're going to die, and uh, well, and even then, it's like that's. That's kind of universal in warfare, um, where you you know you're in warfare, you you're fighting for a good cause, and you're going to sacrifice yourself for the greater good. You know, in this case, it's like uh, from the outside, you can say, okay, well, you know, no one accepts that that's the greater good, and um, and it just kind of it looks weird, right? It looks like there's something wrong going on here, right? But when but, you get try and t- you know tap into the kind of nihilism that 
that this movement is drawing on within its members and the and the the nihilistic environment with which they live in you know surrounded by warfare you know and uh, poverty and all of this mm -hmm. and then you factor in that extra little pathological element that chaotic element that uh, that you can you see in in figures like you know on the macro scale like hitler you know where you get the you know sometimes if you read about him you get the impression that maybe he wanted i think jordan peterson to discuss this or some, some several authors have discussed the fact that maybe he wanted to you know to to die while europe was in flames maybe that was a deep-seated desire of his because of, you know how sick and disgusting he was mm -hmm. that um, and when you see, uh, you know, that this is part of the psyche, I think that's, that's active in these individuals, why they, why they do the crazy things that they do. They can go into battle, you know, believing that they will be rewarded eternally and that nothing that they do is, uh, is unethical, that they should feel guilty about, that it's actually something to be reveled in, in the fact that the fact that you have conquered human morality, you have conquered society, you've conquered the you know this enemy that of reality that's been keeping you down you but you just look it right in the face and you spit it in the face and then believe that you're going to heaven afterwards of course you know the the, the ethical claim you know of that you know that's debatable mm -hmm. highly debatable you're going to heaven after that that's about as crazy a claim i think as you can make but that's just part of the that's a part of the whole package is the yeah. craziness yeah. it's it was, insane which is i actually i find it really interesting that that this whole entire, um, you know, this Islamic movement uh, has uh, finds so much ideological justification within Islam. I mean, because the from what I've read, just in the Mecca mystery, and from reading, uh, I'm also reading another book on the the Syrian um, linguistics behind the Quran. Uh, you you get the idea that a lot of the Quran is basically the same. The same stories from you know from the Bible, you know uh, similar stories from the New Testament stories that were passed around about Jesus that never made it into the canon of the of the West, uh, and but then after that you you get that that large commentary like I discussed earlier like the hadiths that where anybody who knows who these people were they could interject their opinion on who the prophet should be if the prophet is only uh, if his character, um, or by name, is he's only mentioned you know three or four times, I don't know how his character is described in the Quran, uh, but I I am assuming that it's not obviously set out because these people felt like they had to spend a hundred or two hundred years describing. Oh, this is what he did. This is what he said. Oh, he said no. Actually, he said this. No, actually, he did this. He likes to murder people. No, he's pro peace. Yeah. If all he, you have to do is just throw in a couple of people in front of you and say that you got it directly from the guy, and then you can say pretty much whatever you want. Well, that's right. That seems to me where the huge chunk of that corruption, that corrupting mm -hmm. path uh, pathology. Uh, got swept in there, um, and you know because it is it does it just strike me as odd. I haven't read the Quran, um, but you know from what I've read about it, it sounds like the same stories, the same kinds of principles, and uh, even and then a lot of it that can't be understood because some people think that it was written in something in, in Syrian and not Arabic. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> there's some translation issues that nobody can understand what the heck's going on in the book, but. It's just such a confusing mass, you know, for, to have at the center of your culture. Mm -hmm. Well, just one point that I wanted to finish up before we uh, end the show for today. 
is I was talking about the the kind of irony of the Salafi jihadist movement like really gaining steam in the second Iraq war is that uh, for these guys that saw the problems in Salafism, you know, in the 90s, of course the, there was the problem and the solution was the war on terror, presumably. Um, of course there were other motives for that too, but the the war on terror just made things worse and actually gave birth to uh, like a movement that didn't really even exist beforehand. Like, uh, there's no real comparison between the Mujahideen of the 80s to, you know, ISIS today. Um, the, 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 the ideology has solidified, and it has gotten to the point where, like Lobachevsky de- describes, this is a, like a, an ideology, and the problem with ideologies, uh, especially pathocratic ideologies, is that they, they're decentralized. And that is the, a feature of ISIS. Um, and, uh, you know, in other type groups is that the, like Lobachevsky says, the, the leader doesn't matter. Like as much, um, significance is given to any leader of any movement, you know, whether it's Osama bin Laden or, or Stalin or, you know, Hitler or, uh, you know, al-Baghdadi, um, they, the, the leaders actually don't matter very much because the, the, the ideology itself acts as this kind of like broadcasting system, like Lobachevsky describes, that is then picked up on by, um, by susceptible individuals, by like-minded individuals, anywhere. So the the like the the West has in a, in a sense like created ISIS in more than one way. They're not the only ones who have created it because you can't uh, you can't like take the blame away from the people that actually created it, actually wrote the books, and actually you know trained the like trained the fighters. Well, you know, CIA did some joined of that training. it, but the, yeah, the ones that joined it and the ones that are actually like leading the movement on the ground, like you can't take responsibility away from them either. It's this, it's a multi-causal, you know, system. But, um, but really, it's like the the war on terror has been um, one of the biggest contributors to to the growth of this kind of movement, which re- raises the question: Well, you know, how to deal with it? You know, what would be the right approach? Because uh, Russia essentially took a similar approach. Um, but they, but I don't think Russia had the the hidden, you know, secondary motivations um, that uh, like the the Western kind of, you know, the you know the neocons basically had in their war on terror. Like uh, Russia fought, fought a war on terror in Chechnya, the Second Chechen War, and are still fighting it, and they're fighting it in Syria. And but you know how effective is that? You know how effective is warfare at rooting out an ideology? Well, it's not very effective. You know, it might be a a tactical, you know, and strategic necessity at a given moment, like in Syria right now, but it won't get rid of the, you know, it won't get rid of the ideology. It won't get rid of the problem. Partly because the problem is a, hu- a problem of human nature. You know, the existence of these of pathological individuals everywhere all the time. Um, but maybe, you know, that's why I think that, uh, you know, people really, it would be really good if you know, policymakers were to read Ponderology and actually take a few pointers from it, because like Lobachevsky points out you know warfare isn't the isn't the answer you know there will never be a a a military solution to the problem of you know radical ideologies and even worse warfare and then open your borders up to (laughs) to to everyone (laughs) you know the the may probably the worst if you actually want to solve the problem but if you want to create chaos and you are secretly aligned with that that Mm -hmm. uh, kind of craziness in the world then that's exactly what you would do well, everybody, I think that does it for us today. I hope that you enjoyed the show. Uh, tune in next time when we'll be discussing some other interesting esoteric topic. 
Until then, have a fantastic week, and we will see you next time on The Truth Perspective. Bye, everyone. Bye.